So glad to see all of you here. It's, it's good to be together when it is freezing outside. It's been freezing for like the last couple of weeks. And so when we get a chance to come together, uh, I'll, we don't have a fireplace, but I'll try to light it up as much as I can today, I guess. That's like a really bad pastor joke right there, I think. You just, you just entered that. Uh, glad to, glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Listen, if this is your first time here, maybe your first time back in a while, or maybe this is kind of new to you, uh, just letting you know what, what we do here is, is simply try to help you take whatever your next steps are in your personal spiritual journey. And really the goal of, of, you know, my talks, uh, the goal of everything we do when it comes to, you know, Sunday night with the youth group, when it comes to the midweek meetings, when it comes to small groups, it's just simply to try to influence everyone as best as we can to follow Jesus. And that's really what our goal here is as a church. So um, today I realized I have my opening kind of illustration, my opening intro, and I, I realized that I date myself uh, with this, which is really kind of funny because it shouldn't, but it totally does. I, I've got an email that's been sitting in my email box for, for quite a long time, two or three months. And I was thinking, oh, how many of you, like you use your email box as a, a way to kind of remind you of things that you have to do? And see, this is where I'm dating myself. Because anybody who is like, oh, 25 and under, they're like, email? What's that? Like, they have no, like, Instagram and anything like that. But email, I mean, that's, that's for people who are older, professional, whatever. But I've got this thing that I wanted to tackle for for a while and I had an idea. And really what it was was just just a thought process about life and about Christianity. And and the way that they phrased it, I thought, yeah, I think I need to to talk about that. And for me, I I, kind of keep ideas of what I want to talk about. And I I use that as sort of a way to to kind of remind myself. And so today I get to delete my email off of that checklist because I'm finally talking with you about it. Uh, But I've been thinking about three words that are part of a relationship. And, and the, these three words are um, behaving, believing, belonging. And in different contexts, you, you would rearrange how these words are, are in order. For instance, for most clubs, if you want to be a part of a, a club, um, they usually require a certain amount of behavior. Uh, sometimes the behavior is you have to pay your dues. Right. You have to pay in order to be a part of the club. Other times it's you have to have these things in common. You have to behave in this way. You have to meet in this way. Uh, you're meeting and you're, you're doing these things. Like if you're part of a pickleball club, your behavior is to come and you're going to play pickleball. If you come and you don't want to play pickleball and you come with snorkeling apparel, they're going to kick you out because you don't belong. All right. So that's sort of the way that it is. You have to it requires a certain behavior before you can belong. So what I'd like for you to do for like the next 30 seconds is I'd like to talk, I'd like to have you talk with a person next to you, behind you, close to you. But if you were to put these words in a certain order that describe um, Christian behaviors like making disciples, what would come first, what would come second, and what comes last? So take just 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you, talk about how where these things fit within Christianity. What do you think is most important? What do you think is least important?
so so did you did you get a little dialogue there that like a little conversation and you weren't sure which one was supposed to come first? Because some, some of these things, I mean, each one of these words describes a, a part of Christianity. And you can see how in certain contexts, well, one word would be top and then the next one you would, you would see how it would be arranged. But here's the thing. If you get them out of order, you actually move from what the gospel is, from what Christianity is, and you move into what a religious system um, or a religious practice might look like. And see, how you order these words is the difference between religion and the gospel. And when it, with religion, I don't, I'm not trying to say that this is a bad thing, but, but religion is more about how mankind tries to get close to God. Where the gospel is how God has successfully reached out to people through Jesus Christ. It's a totally different understanding. And yes, Christianity is categorized as, as a religion. But here's the thing. Whenever you push for behavior before belief and before belonging, you're pushing a religious system. Whatever you push for behavior first, you have to act this way before you can belong. You have to act this way in order to believe what we believe. And it's saying, if I behave in certain ways, that's when I'm going to experience God's blessing and that's going to be part of my faith. But see, that's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it works inside out. It starts within us and then it moves through us. And it doesn't command, God doesn't command, behave first and then I'm going to accept you. That, that's not how it works. Now see, this is how religion works. But this isn't how the gospel works. In other words, as a church, we're not told... As certain as a person straightens out their act, that's when they can kind of kind of come to church. That's when they can start coming to the service. That's when they can come and do certain things. This is this is not what Scripture says. As soon as they straighten out their act, they're they're going to be able to come, and then we can welcome them into Christianity. That's just that's not the gospel. It actually works the opposite of that. Often we're told to bring people in to belong long before they ever believe. That they have to come and feel, to know that they are loved, that, that we care about them, that, that, and then at that point that, that they've heard what we believe, but they've heard what, what is true about Christianity before they ever believe. And, and we know this, that behavior is something that only really changes after a person becomes a believer in Christ. Every major behavior that you try to do before, it is, it's like trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If you want a true change in character, change in behavior, God's got to be the one that does it and works from, from the inside out. And, and, and it's only after. So, so the idea is behavior is something that only changes after we believe in Christ and after we belong to a loving community. Um, years ago, uh, a pastor told a told a story about a woman at his church that he'd been atten- she'd been attending a church for a few months, and she came and she asked him and she said, "Do you think abortion is wrong?" And he said, "Yeah, he he did." And then she responded this way: She says, "I'm I'm beginning to see that maybe there's something wrong with it now that I've become a Christian and I've been taking the faith classes." Now this woman. 
She was like an Ivy League graduate. She was a lawyer. She lived in Manhattan and she was an active member of the ACLU. And then she just shared voluntarily to him that, that she had experienced three abortions. And she said this, she said, I want you to know that if I had seen um, any literature or reference to the pro-life movement, I wouldn't have stayed through the first service. But I did stay and I found faith in Christ. If abortion is wrong, you should certainly speak out against it. But I'm glad about the order in which you did it. It's interesting, the order in which you do it is, is, is important What happened with her? She experienced belonging first and then believing. And then she realized that requires a change in behavior. I think we often get this kind of turned around. Belonging, believing and behaving, they're all part of Christianity. But we've got to be careful with the order and how we communicate each part of our faith. And so what I'd like for you to do is I'd like you to keep this in mind. Um, for the rest of the, of the message with, with everything I'm about to say. Um, Josh mentioned earlier, um, and so did Anita, about today being Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, back in 1984, that's when President Reagan uh, declared that the third Sunday of January is the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And so that's today. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to, um, I'd like to, to start off with a question. What does it look like to be pro-life or or maybe i should ask it in a different way what should it look like to be pro-life because to many people i think being pro-life simply means that you oppose abortion that's what it means to be pro-life you use the term pro-life um People who are non-Christians, people that are irreligious, they hear the term and what they think of is protesters. Uh, people who have signs or, or slogans or they're on a march or, or any of those things that, that might make the news and maybe it looks, you know, controversial, you know, an us versus them and all that kind of stuff. And I understand what the people who are who are marching, the people who are having the signs, I understand what they're trying to do. And in some cases, that is the right thing to do. But what many people who don't know Jesus, what they in, interpret that to be saying, and all they really hear is behave. Behave. That's, that's what they're hearing at, at that time. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of challenge this mindset, and I want to give us a new framework for what it looks like to be pro-life. So I want to talk about what it looks like to be pro-life, maybe what that means. Um, I also want to talk about how it involves uh, a selfless love, how James and Peter, how they interpreted being pro-life. And then thirdly, how the early church often lived it out. So the first thing I have to say is that I have to assume that not everyone in this room um, or people who are watching online or listening online, that, that not everybody here is pro-life as we have kind of defined it. And actually, not everybody here may even be a Christian. So I want you to know that, that I understand that. And I want to make sure that you understand I'm speaking to a group of people who are followers of Jesus Christ. But I want to include you, if you are not a part of that group, I want to include you into this this dialogue here to kind of understand this. Um, so before I try to develop a framework for what it, what it likes to actually be pro-life, 
let me tell you what I, where I'm coming from as a follower of Christ. So um, today in, in our world, um, our world uses abortion basically as a kind of contraception most of the time. And if a pregnancy gets in the way of, of your future career, of, of your ambitions or whatever, the cultural answer, the cultural answer is um, get an abortion. But as a Christian, everything that I believe, everything that I do, um, it, it's got to start with a question. What is God's view of these things? It doesn't matter if it seems logical to me or if it seems logical to everybody else. I have to ask, what is God's view of these things? So what is God's view of the, the family? What is God's view of the individual? What is his view of sexuality? What is his view of morality, the material world, uh, money? Can I go next slide, please, in the back? Um, so I need to ask, what is God's understanding? Oh, sorry. Go to the previous slide. <laughs> There we go. I I guess I messed that up. So I need to ask this question. What is God's understanding and what is his um, thought of conception? What are his thoughts of of this thing that we call abortion? And and throughout the scriptures, I'm just going to give you a quick run through. The scripture teaches that that God gives us life and value and personhood from the time we're conceived in our mother's wombs. Isaiah 49.1 says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He, he, he named my name. Now, this is a very sort of a generic statement. But what he's saying is before Isaiah was born, God knew him. God named him. He had a purpose for him. Same thing was true for Jeremiah. If, uh, if you remember back to our, our, the Christmas story that we just m- many of us just recounted, um, that's true for John the Baptist. Uh, John, it says God knew him before he was born, while he was in the womb. There's a whole story about that whole thing that, that happened there. Um, Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. So, so here's the reason why I believe that human life is so valuable. It's because we are image bearers of God. That, that, that God is the one who, who created us. He created us in His image. And, and He talks about how important that is throughout Scripture. So, these are two of the basic foundation points that, that as a follower of Christ, that, that I hold to. Over the years, there have been people who they hold to abortion, uh, the pro-choice. And, and they've collected a number of arguments that, that to defend their position, why they feel like they should be able to, to do what they want to do. And, and so some of them are, you know, women have a right to make their own decisions or, or maybe poor women can't afford to raise the child or uh, perhaps a, a woman shouldn't be forced into bringing an unwanted child in, into the world or somebody or a d- disabled child that's in the world and, or every woman has a right to decide. Um, what's right and wrong for herself and see all of these arguments. I mean, they sound they sound like, OK, the you know, pretty solid arguments until you take that same logic and you apply it to a two year old. And if, at that point, once you start applying it to somebody who is a two year old will say, well, no, that doesn't work. You know, you can't say every woman has a right to decide what's what is right and, and wrong for herself. Talking about in the womb. Well, for a two year old, she doesn't have the right to do that, because if she puts a two year old to death, that would be wrong. And so we, we understand these things. And and one of the more recent arguments come from 
people who have realized that they've, they've kind of lost the argument on a logical and scientific level because virtually no professional bioethicist denies that life begins at conception now. We see this scientifically. It's, it's been very clear. And so they've switched tactics to an argument based on personhood theory. So basically the idea is an unborn baby isn't really a person yet. And, and only persons have value. So an unborn baby is not a person and only persons have value. But yet here in Scripture, we, we still hear something about this. God has something to say about this as well. Psalm 51, 5, um, David writes this. He says, indeed, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. Um, Bruce Waltke, who's a uh, wonderful uh, scholar, he makes an observation here. So David is pointing to his sinfulness, even from the hour of his conception. That's where he's pointing to it. And Waltke says this, In tracing his spiritual condition to the time of conception, David goes on to note that already in his fetal state, the moral law of God was present with him. So from the time of conception, what this is basically saying is this. Every person is under the moral law of God. So, so let's logically think through this. What is not under the moral law of God? And the answer would be non-persons. Non-persons are not under the moral law of God. Rocks are not really under the moral law of God. You know. Don't lie. You don't say that to rock. The, the, the non-persons, they're not under the moral law of God, but persons are under the moral law of God. And what, what David is confessing here is from the moment of, from the moment of conception, I'm under the moral law of God. What, what God is telling us here as we think through this is that, that we're all people, we're persons from the time we're, we're conceived. And so God tells us everyone is made in his image. Um, it, everyone has fallen. There are some innate knowledge of God that we have, but we're also sinful. And the scripture teaches that infanticide and, and abortion, that, they, that God categorizes them as sin. So I have to say, well, what does God say about this? And, and when I see what I say, I have to say, OK, that's what, so one example of that is, is found in Exodus 21. With with the law that, that God gives um, to the people of Israel in Exodus 21, it, it gives a scenario. If men fight and, and they hit a pregnant woman and her child is born prematurely. But if there's no serious injury injury, he will surely be punished in accordance with what the woman's husband demands him and he will pay whatever the court decides. But if there is serious injury, you will give a life for a life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. In other words, if, if the baby dies, that that person has the death penalty as well. This is how God equates it. So all of this to say, this is where I come from as a Christian. God's got to inform my reality or my morality and why I think, well, I think this is a very short summary. It's very short, uh, a summary of my, I, I think this position is true. Uh, I believe it, but it's not enough. Um, this is not what it looks like to be pro-life. And if you thought that this is what it looks like, let me just tell you, it, it's just, it's just not enough 
And if this is what you've heard, that this is what Christians always say, and that's what pro-life is, let me just say that that's, that's not what it looks like to be pro-life. And we've got to move from just arguments and, and all this to, to action, to how we live. We've got to move from truth to love, how we actually love people. There is a difference between holding to a pro-life position and living it out in, in everyday life. So the pro-life position says the child's life should not be sacrificed through abortion. But see, the person who lives out the gospel, they believe that the child's life is worth sacrificing for. There's a big difference with that. There's a big difference. Um, James writes in his letter to to us, he he defines pro-life not just as being there to protect and to care for the unborn, But it's being there to care for them after birth as well. Listen to what he says. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To care for orphans and widows and their misfortune. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. So pure religion, when you think of religion, some people think of religion and that's because that's people who go to church. That's people who practice certain, you know, ordinances or creeds or or whatever, or, um, you know, just attending a religious practice. So pure, pure religion is not that. Pure religion, according to James, consists of demonstrations of supernatural and selfless love. That's when he says care, caring for people. The the orphan and the widow, they're, they're a category of, of people They have nothing to offer you in return. In the day when James wrote this, orphans, they had, they, they had nothing. Um, widows, they had, that meant they had nobody to take care of them. And so they have nothing to offer you in return. So when you care for them, what are you getting in return? And the answer is, well, well, nothing. You don't do it so you can get a return. There's gotta be a, a different, Reason You don't get a return on your investment. You're not going to get a return on your time. You're not going to get a return on your, your energy and your love and your tears and your finances. And yet James says, this is what it really looks like. And, and see, here's the problem. We live in a world of somewhere around 153 million orphans. What, what do we do about that? You know, I've, I've been so encouraged that there are people in our church and in our community and they have been on the front lines for, for years in, in this respect. And I would say that they're an example of what it means to be pro-life every day, because what they do every day is they sacrifice their time and their energy and, and the, their finances and they choose to love Boys and girls who don't have parents they can rely on. And many times these men and women, they move from providing foster care to actually saying we want to adopt this child into our our lives and and having these children as as their own. And and from what I've seen, um, and there are many of you here today, and let me just say from what I have seen this is not glamorous. We, we think that, oh, that's so kind of a romantic thing. Oh, yeah, the adoption, yeah, romantic, glamorous. Maybe not romantic in one sense, but, but there's something really great about it. It's not glamorous. It's hard. 
It's messy. Being pro-life in this way can be very discouraging at times. Being pro-life in this way can be very challenging. And yet I'll tell you this, being pro-life in this way is beautiful. And it is valued in God's eyes because this is who God is. This is what He does. Psalm 68.5 says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. Over and over in the Old Testament, God picks out the orphan and the widow and He says, I'm, I'm going to be a father to them. That that's what, what is important to me. God speaks often about the fatherless. He speaks often about adoption. It's such a big deal that it says that He has adopted every person who trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior. God says, I am their Father. They're welcome to call me Abba. That's like saying, Daddy. That He's adopted every believer. He's made them a child. And He's given them an inheritance as sons. If you're a follower of Christ, whether you are male or female, he calls you sons with with a link to the inheritance of sons. And And it has nothing to do with like this whole gender thing that people point out today. What it has to do with this idea that back then daughters didn't gain an inheritance. And what he's cluing you into is that you have an a right. You have a right to his inheritance that he gives when you're adopted. And, and this, this is what it means. Now, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that we're meant to replicate this? We're, we're meant to replicate this, being a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. We're supposed to do this. See, James says that is pure and undefiled religion. James speaks of it. And in James 1.27, he actually he gives us two descriptors. Next slide, please. Two descriptors of our morality, of what we've got to look like. The first one is sacrificial love and care. And then the second one is being unstained. That's part of what it means to be pro-life here. Okay, two descriptors. Sacrificial love, which is care, and then being unstained. And this is where Christian behavior really matters. We have to live differently than the world around us does. And, and there are two areas I think that we need to, to give attention to. One, I would say, is, is um, the idea of being unstained. And that's um, James and others talk about not being hypocritical and not letting hypocrisy into our lives, removing hypocrisy from our lives, and then also being willing to show sacrificial love. Not just love. Sacrificial love means that you're not going to get something. You're not doing this to get something out of it. It's not about a feel-good thing. And, and I, think, I think that Christians have publicly um, and politically, um, they've been vocal about calling out and, and saying, labeling abortion as murder. But I think what our world needs to see alongside this is a working out of the gospel in our personal lives. The more that you understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, if you're if you're a Christian, the more it's going to move you to act in in very profound ways. Peter wrote this in his first letter. He said, "Um, beloved, I urge you as a sojourner or as sojourners and exiles or or as aliens and and strangers. Next, Next slide, please. 
as aliens and strangers, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Christians are called sojourners and exiles, aliens and strangers. Some some translations use. I, I like those two words. We're called aliens and strangers. We're supposed to look. We're supposed to act differently from the world around us. We're supposed to have honorable conduct. That's what is typical of us as aliens and, and strangers. And James and Peter, both of us tell, both of them tell us we've got to remove hypocrisy. If you want to see God do a work in our church, do a work in our community, you've got to remove hypocrisy. And the church is meant to be pure. It's meant to be unstained. It's meant to be undefiled. It's meant to be honorable. And here's the thing. We can't restore a truth to our culture unless it comes through our church first. We are not going to be able to restore any kind of truth to our culture around us unless it comes through us and is in the midst of, in the midst of us as, as believers first. But see, whenever the church gets it, Whenever we, we get it, we pick up the gospel, we live by it, we become aliens and foreigners to those around us, and God enables us to make an impact for Him in ways that we would never imagine. And, and, and it, it really is ways that we would never imagine, because sometimes it involves hard times. It involves hardships. And yet God uses those hardships to change other people's lives. One of the things that, that we know about the early church is this, that they, that they lived what they believed. And in doing so, the church, they, they were very, they were very countercultural at, at the time. They didn't go to the, the gladiatorial feasts, to the celebrations. They didn't want to go see uh, the bloodthirsty sports hurting and, and killing people. They didn't go to those things. And so because of that, they were labeled as antisocial. Um, they didn't serve in the military because serving in the military on Caesar's conquest, that, that involved forced idolatry. You were forced to, um, to basically worship, in a sense, worship Caesar, and they, they could not do that. Um, the early church, they honored women and empowered them to be involved in things that was very different than the rest of society. They did not allow women to do certain, and they dishonored women. Um, the early church was against sex outside of marriage. They were against sex, uh, same-sex practices. They were radically for helping the poor, helping the hurting. They gave to the poor in ways that no one in society, the Romans or the Greeks, ever did. Um, they mixed races and classes together in their gatherings. It was considered scandalous to everybody around that you would have races and classes, men and women that would come together in their gatherings, and everybody, they called each other brother and sister like equals. And that was scandalous at that time. Uh, they believed that only Christ is the way of salvation. The, the Greeks, they were polytheists. Um, they, they had uh, idols that they could buy and they could worship. Everybody worshipped their, their own idols, their own gods. You could move to a different place and buy a new god and change gods and say, this is the one I'm worshipping now because it seems to have sway over this realm. But, but Christians believed that only Jesus was the way to salvation. 
They, they were against abortion. They were against infanticide. They rescued children. And that day it was considered perfectly legit that if you uh, if you didn't want your child, let's say you were hoping for a son and you were given a daughter. Um, we, we have actual written letters where the husband is away on, on a military campaign and he writes home to his wife and he says, if it's a girl, let it out to be exposed and to die. That was the instructions that he gave his, his wife as she was pregnant. They took care of the orphans and the widows. The orphans had no one to care for them and they would find them. They would care for them. We, we read in Acts chapter uh, 7 that, that they actually took care of widows, that widows really needed help and they, and they did it. They organized. They were aliens. Yet they were honorable they were different. They were pure. They had integrity in living out what they believed. And it changed the world. So let's bring it back to today's church. Today's church doesn't often look like that, does it? In many ways, we've compromised when it comes to purity. Stained is what James says. See, it's not just the, the giving and the helping, but how also are you living in your own walk? We become stained in many ways. Compromised when it comes to purity. And there, there are many Christians who say they believe um, God's word. But see, even when it comes to this issue, to being pro-life, um, your view on abortion, statistics say this. For out of 10 women were attending church monthly when they had their first abortion. Four out of 10 attending church monthly. You know, I, I think about the, the non-Christian who's sexually active, doesn't believe in God, believes, you know, my body's my mom, all the all the stuff that, that, that is taught by culture and, and they get abortion. It's often to avoid um, a responsibility of having a child. I mean, inconvenient, whatever. There's probably just a, a lot of different reasons. I don't want to just label it one way. But I would say this for the Christian who gets an abortion. There's there's an additional element. It's kind of like David and Bathsheba. If you read that story, see, there's this giant cover up. There, there's a cover up. It's about covering and, and hiding their sin. I still remember a story that just is lodged in my mind that Becky Pippert told that, that a, a woman came up to her and was talking and just had a, a problem with guilt in her life. And she said, um, I've been a believer. She was a Christian leader uh, in an organization and her and her fiance were involved in the church and everything. And four months before they were ready to get married, she got pregnant. And because they saw what that would do and how they would have to come out, they decided that she would get an abortion. And all she could ever think when she was walking down the aisle, what did I do? I'm a murderer. I'm a murderer. What did I do? And Becky Pepper, she takes her back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is so wonderful, and just says, listen, you are a murderer. You were carrying the nails in your pocket. Martin Luther says that every one of us carried the nails in our pocket that crucified Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ knew everything that you were going to do. And your sins were forgiven on that cross. On that day. When he died for your sins. 
But, but I think about how church world, non-church world, statistically, it's very similar. And see, hypocrisy is when, when, you wear, um, when you wear a mask to kind of cover up. You're covering up, you're wearing a costume, offering, offering I'm sorry, um, often it is uh, when you're covering up sin, but sometimes it's covering up uh, who you are. You don't, you don't want people to see who you are or you want to please people, so you wear a mask in order to, to please certain people. And see, here's the thing, you can't be a light to people around you who are far from God when you're, as James called it, you're being stained by the world. Because he doesn't mean stained glass being a light. No, it means a stain is a problem. And so here's the thing. Having a pro-life position is one thing. But see, believers in Christ, they're called to cast off hypocrisy. They're called to live in a way that is different from this world. As well as showing a care. Showing a sacrificial love to those people around us. But see, how do we do this? And let me just be very, very um, truthful to you, to be honest, um, it's impossible. It's just impossible in our own strength. You cannot do it in your own strength. But he- here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ, our, our, our belonging to Christ and our belief in the gospel is what shapes our behavior. Our belonging to Christ, our, our belief In the gospel, that's what shapes our behavior. If you're thinking about how I have to just behave, listen, you've got to go back to who you belong to, that you have been adopted. You have to go back to your faith in the gospel about what does it teach us. A few years ago, I I read something that kind of amazed me when it comes to adoption, thinking about it says in Scripture that every follower of Jesus has been adopted and they have a heavenly father. I read something um, when it comes to adoption that certain states have adoption laws and protections, especially for kids who've been adopted and their their adopted parents dies. So when a parent writes a will, they can um, they can write their biological child out of the will. You write a will and, and, you know, you put, you know, your, your son or your daughter or whoever in the will. But later, you know, people have done this before. Um, I'm mad at them and so I'm writing them out of the will or whatever, for whatever reason. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, if it's an adopted child, they can't do that. They can't write the adopted child out of the will. The state gives more protection and security to the adopted child. And I thought, what a great picture of what it means to be adopted by our Heavenly Father because of our faith in Christ. It just just amazes me. I don't say it often enough, probably to myself and others, but actually that Jesus would call us brothers. How? How? That just blows me away. We use the idea, oh yeah, my Heavenly Father, so often. Really? Do you think about it? Do you really understand what that means? And so to think of this idea of adoption, it's just this thing here. It's just a beautiful picture of, of the security of a believer in Jesus Christ. Everyone who is a follower of Christ can in some way understand what it means to be a child in need of adoption. Because before, when we're going and running around in this world, we're basically living as orphans. 
Or at best, you can say, I was of my father, the devil. That's what we could say. And yet God, our father, has taken us. He has brought us in. He has adopted us, not based on our behavior. And yet when he changes us, when he gives us his Holy Spirit, he says, but your behavior will change. You will need to change in how you live because you need to be a light to take my light to the rest of the world. You know, I, I think about it. If somebody at your, your school or your work or your neighborhood was to look at you and see that you're a Christian and ask you the question. I'm still waiting for somebody to ask me this question because I think it's such a snappy answer. How is it that you're a Christian, Kyle? And my best answer would be to say, well, I'm adopted. That's the only way. That's the way I'm a believer is because I've been adopted. Listen, if you're a Christian today, do you think of yourself in this way? It is so critical to think this way, because when you think this way, it changes how you live. We have this hope. When you have a hope, you live toward it. When you don't have this hope, you don't live toward it. You live toward something else. So you can't consistently believe, behave in a way that's inconsistent with how you perceive yourself. This is why God says, I'm telling you who you are. You're my child. And I love you. And see, you won't live like an orphan when you believe that you're a son or a daughter. And see, when we do this, we begin to see other people need adoption too. Both literally and spiritually. Other people need adoption too. I was adopted. That's how I became a Christian. But other people need to be adopted. There are children who literally need to be adopted. And it's just like how God reached out to us when we were alone and when we were orphaned. And you and I, we're called to help those children. Those children in need, both the born and the unborn. So I I don't say this, uh, Josh mentioned it earlier. So I don't say this to make our conscience, to ease our conscience or make it easier on us. But um, we have been supporting Life Choices Center, baby bottles. Pick one up in the back. Please do this. Fill it up with some change. This is just a very, trust me, this is a small way to help, to make a change. This is a small way to, to fulfill what, what James is, is talking about. But in our last elder meeting, we decided that this is a ministry we need to support more in, in a more regular way. Way Because they're doing things on the front lines with helping the orphans or the ones who could be orphans or the ones who won't ever come into existence. And so they're bringing training to parents that they're helping moms who are really in a um, just a, a very tough place between a rock and a, and a hard place and all of this. Um, we also we, we we realized that we were supporting two different ministries towards children. One is locally uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship here. Um, we have two guys that are involved, Dave Lemon, uh, Jim Nedlick, a, a number of teens that are getting involved in this. But we also saw that we were involved in another ministry that was really just helping just kids in New York and we don't have a whole lot of association for them. So what we decided to do is we really need to try to partner with the people who we're supporting. So we're taking the funds from this and we're bringing it locally because we know we have people in our church that are actually doing the work and helping out these children, teaching them who Jesus Christ is. And so we did this. And I think in a small way, this is what it looks like to be pro-life. Supporting children, both before birth and after birth. But, but let me tell you, our, our financial 
contribution as a church uh, is nothing in comparison compared to what some of these families are doing right now and what they have done when it comes to fostering and, and adopting. Let me go back to something. Our belonging to Christ and our belief in the gospel, that is what shapes our behavior. Why do we do these things? Why do we behave these ways? It's because of who God has made us. So I mentioned in the very beginning that what we're about here is trying to help you take your next step in your spiritual journey. So my question is, what's your next step? And I I only labeled a few of them here. But but here's the question. Do you know right now where you are that you have become stained? James says, I I want you to become unstained by this world. And you look back and you say, yeah, there's a part of me. There's uh, I'm stained. I've been hiding under a mask of hypocrisy. Let, Let me just tell you, do you know the solution for any hypocrisy? For, for any sin, for any stain that you feel like you have. Do you know what the solution is? You confess it to God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess that to God and He cleanses you. You can take that and you, you find a close friend. You find somebody who is close to you and you tell them. You talk to them. You confess that to them. See, at that point, when you do that, it no longer has power over you because you're no longer being a hypocrite. You're letting it out in the open. And you're saying, God, you, you can have you can have me. This is who I am. I'm confessing who I am to you. And no longer does it have power over you. And then you can be give, begin living free of the stains of this world. Maybe that's your next step. For, for some of you, maybe the next step is the question is, how are you involved in, in helping the helpless? James mentions um, widows and orphans. I didn't even talk about widows today. But are you involved in, in helping? It is a church we're involved in supporting life choices, other children's ministries. But listen, there are many creative ways where you can get involved in a personal way. You've just got to keep your eyes open. And say, I want to purposefully do that. Are are you doing that? Maybe that's your next step. Thirdly, maybe this is the step. Let me tell you, this is a big step. For some of you, maybe, maybe God has been tugging on your heart. That maybe you may want to enter this non-glamorous, difficult, messy world of deciding to try to help somebody through foster care. Or maybe you've even been thinking about adoption. So have you considered of taking that step of faith and and, and moving towards that? Because if you do that, let me just tell you what will happen. You'll be involved in changing a life forever. Forever is a long time. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. So... I'm not sure what your next step is. Maybe there's something else. But let me just say this is one way that we can pray. Maybe you should pray. Maybe you need to ask God and say, God, would you help me to see those children, those orphans around you or around me so that I can care for them? And you should pray and say, God, would you empower people around the world to to help protect the most vulnerable? But another prayer that we should always pray is say, God, would you remind me? Of what it means that you adopted me because I am a child because of Christ.
remind me of what that looks like. Why don't we pray together as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for everybody today and and whatever steps they may need to take. Wherever they are in their spiritual journey, and and maybe um, this is the first time that they've been here. They've even heard this term gospel. Maybe, Maybe that's not clear to them. I pray that you would help them to take their next step and ask, what is this gospel? What is it about Jesus that makes you worship him? I pray that if there's anybody here today, they would take that next step and ask somebody that they know, somebody here, or maybe one of the pastors. But maybe the next step is for somebody here who they know that they have not been living for you. There's been a part of their life that is quarantined off and and they've been kind of living in a hypocritical way and they need to let that go. They need to confess that. They need to repent of that. They need to return. Lord, would you help them take that next step? And Father, uh, maybe the next step is supporting children around us in, in some way. Or maybe the next step is that very big step of choosing to foster. I pray, Lord, would you work in those people's lives right now if they should choose to do this? Would you give them wisdom? Would you give them strength for this often difficult but very meaningful journey. Father, help us to see, open our eyes, to see the needs of those around us. Lord, I pray that you would, on this day, we think of the sanctity of life. We pray for those, those women who are pregnant and they are teetering on the edge of making a decision. Would you just bring a person into their lives, just even one person, to say, I'll be there to help you. That they would choose life. They would choose your way. And Father, I pray that you would remind each one of us what it means. Those of us who are followers of Christ. What it means to be adopted as your child. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for blessing us when we did not deserve it. And we still don't deserve it. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, Grace Point. Good to see you. Have a great day. And please pick up one of these bottles in the back if you'd like to help out. Take care. You're dismissed.